Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to the March 2022 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. A proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 288, we visit with Cliff Jurgen, author of Sweet Tater Tango, fifth book in the Jake Elium Chicken Bone Mystery Series. The Chicken Bone Mystery Series features a former baseball player turned reluctant private investigator Jake Elium and his best friend and benefactor Bobby Catfish Wilson, former college football hero and owner of the Three Pigs Barbecue. In Sweet Tater Tango, the Southern Knights Baseball League needs investors, so Catfish switches sports to become part owner of the Tully Cedar Taterheads. Despite sensing a bad mojo, Jake signs on as manager for a fat paycheck. The brains behind the league, Billy Bonds, cares more about pig races, ticket gate monkeys, and beer nights than baseball. During the biggest promotion of the summer, a legendary car from a famous TV show, Miami Vice, barrels through the outfield fence and disappears into the night. Jake is forced to lead a new team to find the expensive ride where nobody will earn a penny. The judge who awarded Cliff the silver medal in the 2016 Georgia Author of the Year Award in the Mystery Detective category said, Clipped one-liners, snappy retorts, terse quick writing, mentalist with no wasted words, grab me from the beginning. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it, uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author, turned podcaster of books and stories, and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. A few quick things to know about the podcast. Uh, You can listen to the podcast wherever you like to get your podcast on all major podcast platforms, but you can also get more at charlottereaderspodcast.com. At our website there, you can get show notes on each episode where we share information about uh, the authors who appear on the show. There's a guest list that shows all the authors with links to their episodes. There is a community blog where authors who've appeared on the show or who've submitted to the podcast can share their wisdom and knowledge about writing and book recommendations. And then we have a community vlog where we do some Facebook live interviews. Uh, if you like video, check that out. And then there's the book report you can sign up for uh, at the podcast website. That's where we share on a monthly basis information about the podcast, what's happening, what's coming. And uh, hey, we won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And if you like uh, audiobooks, check out Libro.fm. We have an affiliation with them because they support independent bookstores. And when you sign up, if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, you're going to get a free audiobook. On the Landis Wade front, check out LandisWade.com. That's where you can find out more about uh, me and my writing. I also have a blog there where I I write about uh, what I've learned uh, from authors and learn about the writing process. It's called Wade Scripts. And we have a newsletter you can sign up for there, uh, the Landis Wade Author Newsletter. And a shameless plug here uh, from the other sponsor of the podcast, uh, that's me. I have a novel. Uh, It's out on ebook now. It's coming out in print uh, on April the 5th. Uh, It's called Deadly Declarations, uh, and it's about an unlikely trio of retirees who set out to solve the mystery of the 
supposed Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. That is, if they don't die trying. Let's get to the episode. Cliff, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Landis. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on the uh, latest uh, in the Jake Elium Chicken Bone Mystery Series. Thank you so much. I enjoy yeah. them. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about where Chicken Bone came from in a little bit. But uh, first of all, I just want to say that I really enjoyed reading the book. Funny book, you know, open it up and I'm laughing. My wife's, you know, saying, what are you laughing about? I said, well, it's just Jake Elium Chicken Bone Mystery Series thing. And uh, so my question is, have you always been kind of the funny guy? Uh, a, a little bit, I would say. I like to to joke around, have fun with my friends, but... When it came to writing, most of it was journalism, so it couldn't be funny. <laughs> you're, so, you're saying that you're saying there's no funny in journalism. Well, uh, there, some people will say my expense reports were fiction. <laughs> well, I, I did a great job of that, but uh, maybe that's where it came from. Yeah, that's good. Well, before we talk about this series here uh, and the characters in this book, uh, you spent your life as a storyteller. You say traveling the U.S. as a writer, producer, photographer, and editor in broadcast journalism, much of which involved major sporting events, which might explain why we've got a minor league baseball team in this book. But tell us a little bit about your origin story here and how it led to you writing books. I um, grew up here in rural Georgia, and so there was always a lot of these type characters that end up in my book around me. But um, went off to college and loved sports. Played some music, played in my brother's older band, but wasn't very good at that either. So decided sports was the thing because I made some good friends there through sports in college. And then you suddenly realize, and you're you're a former college football player, and you were (laughs) successful. But when you hit 180, you know you're not going to make the major leagues. So you better find another way to get in the game for free. And, yes. and and that's how I got into sports. A good friend of mine, David Still, now the uh, 30-year voice of the Orlando Magic, uh, had gotten a job after college up in WLOS-TV in Asheville, and they needed somebody to shoot, one-man band, cover South Carolina sports, North Carolina sports, and that was my first job. Spent a lot of time rambling those roads in North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, everywhere from the Durham Bulls to the World 600, which we used to shoot with one camera mm. uh, rather than 100 now, and uh, Clemson Tigers when Danny Ford was there. And from there, I got a chance to go to Baltimore and make the major leagues, but only as a producer. <laughs> So 10 years on the road producing Major League Baseball for the station there, 10 more years in a sports production unit there, returned home to Georgia with my aging parents, went over to the dark side, went to CNN, and been covering news in the middle of the night uh, for CNN for 13 years. And by the dark side, you mean you gave up sports and you started talking about news, right? Yeah, I gave up sports and started editing news. I don't get to talk about news at all. All I do is listen to some 22-year-old New York producer tell me what to do. I got you. Well, I have a little his- you know, family history. My, my grandfather, um, who I didn't know because he died when I was young, he was a sports writer. He had a 
uh, column in the Charlotte Observer. Then he went on to be the sports information director, Jake Wade at uh, Chapel Hill. And so uh, I think one time he tried to write the great American novel. It didn't work out for him. But uh, so I'm trying to pick up maybe where he he left off. And I've always been fascinated because I heard stories about him traveling those roads because he was in Chapel Hill back and forth. It was the old tobacco road and all the you know, Duke and Carolina and Wake Forest and State were all battling. I'm sure you saw some great rivalries over time in sports you covered. I did. Uh, you know, the first assignments were down at Clemson because they needed somebody in South Carolina. And that was the years that Danny Ford, we we might say he cheated a little bit, but maybe <laughs> who knows? He had some he had some seniors in woodwork in one oh one. I saw right. him a lot. But he won a national championship. Uh he's a great guy and, and I enjoyed covering that. South Carolina had George Rogers, a Heisman Trophy winner. And during that time, uh, Georgia played Tennessee and I shot the first Herschel Walker touchdown when he ran over Billy Bates and Larry Munson yelled, my God, a freshman. And uh, then mostly a lot of fun up at Western Carolina University, a beautiful little university in Cullowee, North Carolina. That was our kind of hometown team because it was close to Asheville. And uh, there, the biggest deal was the Southern Conference ran an example, a test for a three-point goal in NCAA. And so they moved their game up so they could try to be the first to get one that year. It was a test <laughs> in the Southern Conference. And Coach Cottrell, Stephen Cottrell, the coach, he came, he sent one of his assistants over to tell me, don't blank this up because the Hall of Fame wants this video. And I was the only camera there. And a man, a young man named Rocket Ronnie Carr hit the first three-point goal in NCAA basketball history and it's been 41 years later and I was the only one that shot the video of that and a few years ago my friend that I mentioned David Steele who was doing the radio play-by-play that night he called me up and he he said he saw something about it and he said we were there weren't we <laughs> and, and I said I hope so because I've been lying about that for 35 years if not yeah, that's a great story. Uh, you'll have to name one of your characters in your books about uh, the person who, who made the first uh, three-point field goal. Yeah, he's still around. He actually, uh, they do, uncovered the video recently and showed it to him in a 40-year anniversary story, and it brought tears to his eyes. So it was, it was, it was a good thing. Glad it's still around. Not shot very well, but uh, uh, one of the great moments there covering North Carolina sports. Well, you know, as we as we segue here into talking about your books and your series here, you say you've written more stories than you can count. Uh, you've been in dugouts with rats under your feet, smelling locker rooms, planes, trains, hotel bars, buses at 4 a.m. outside Detroit. Uh, you also grew up on a rural cattle farm in Georgia, which you say taught you many valuable life lessons, such as never poke a big bull in the rear with a big stick. And while that sounds like a fun story, uh, how old were you when you poked the bull and had that turn out for you? <laughs> Not well. And and my dad wasn't happy about some of the things I did with the, the his prize bulls because he was there to make money off this cattle farm. He, he, it, they called him family farms or gentleman farmer because he had other occupations. He was an air-conditioned heating guy who ran his own business, a state representative here in Georgia. But 
everybody had farms in the neighborhood, and we had about 400 head of cattle. And I used to take a football, and I would go out there with my German shepherd chasing me if I yelled. And then the cows would scatter, and then I would throw and try to hit his prize bulls in the butt. So that would be a completion. And uh, if my dad ever knew I had done that, I would have been taken to the behind the barn because uh, he did not like people messing with his bulls. All right, that'll be our secret. You say you live in Atlanta, and you say there is no Atlanta neighborhood known as Chicken Bone, but there should be. And why is that? Uh, because Atlanta has wiped out every historic building they can find except the varsity which is barricaded and won't let them tear it down. So there should be some old neighborhoods here with some of the old South traditions. And that's why I planted chicken bone in the middle of a train yard uh, that doesn't exist in the middle of Atlanta anymore and stuck a barbecue joint in the middle of it. Perfect. That's perfect. So you've written a series of very catchy titles. Uh, uh, It's, Rabbit Shine is one, Hoochie Coochie another, Mudcat Moon, Bird Dog Boogie, and the one we're going to talk about today, Sweet Tater Tango. You sound like you're having a lot of fun just with the titles and also the character names. And, you know, uh, is that true? Is this a is this a fun adventure for you? It is. Um, how it came about of just, you know, the names and the titles. Like I said, I grew up in a rural area and everybody had a nickname. And a lot of people will look at some of the names in my books, Roadkill, Polecat, Sweet Thing, and, and they'll say, boy, that's Southern stereotype. That's not the way it is anymore. But you get off the interstate and go down them tar and gravel roads where I grew up, and you'll find a Stinky and a Snog and a Stumpy. And a, and they'll not be some guy in a trailer. They'll, they might be your congressman. And so I appreciated their names. And I appreciated their stories uh, and the way they talked and the way they kind of, everything was a slow journey. But when I first tried fiction, I tried to copy everybody that I liked and it stunk. And a a good friend of mine read it for me because I wasn't having any luck selling it. And he said, this stinks. And, you know, honesty deepens friendship. And uh, he said, you know, you need to find your own voice. You you ramble. You tell stories. You don't make sense half the time. So why don't you put that in a book? And so I took his advice, and that's where it started, was finding my own voice and dumbing it down to my level. Well, that that is a really good advice for anyone who's listening, uh, who's aspiring to be a writer, or if you already are, you know, don't chase uh, what's the latest success out there. Don't don't try to be something that you're not, but take that lived experience that you have and use it and put it in your own voice. And and you've done that in these series. And I can see that you're kind of you're kind of the guy I'd like to sit down and have a beer with, um, and 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 shoot the bull, so to speak. Not throw footballs at him, but you know, shoot the bull. <laughs> uh, but I, I really did also laugh at the legalistic nature of your disclaimer. Uh, <laughs> In the very beginning of your book, you have an interesting disclaimer, and I'm just wondering if this came about because somebody wrote you and said, you know, this doesn't conform at all to the traditional mystery novel. Uh, because you put a little disclaimer in here. It says, uh, 
And this disclaimer has to do with the word mystery in the series. Perhaps you bought this because you were looking for a traditional mystery. And nope, you're not going to get that. Here's what you're going to get. And you talk about the fact that uh, you've gotten the advice of semi-licensed lawyer Rufus Bailey, proud graduate of the Gilly Gilbert School of Law and muffler repair. Anyway, tell us about the disclaimer. That sounds like uh, just, you know, a response to a one-star review somewhere. It, it was. It was two. Uh, one, <laughs> a review and an agent. And uh, uh, I decided, okay, I need to put a disclaimer like they do for all those medicines. And uh, I'm not sure my books will cause those inflictions, but I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But one review basically, you know, criticized that it was stereotype. It was it was the old South, not the new South. And there was no such people like that around. And so I got to thinking about that. And I said, well, yeah, they are. And then I sent I, I, my books were with a group in Memphis. They got bought out by New York City agent. Didn't hear from them. Couldn't get a hold of them. She finally wrote me an email that said, and, and I quote, when we said we were looking for new Southern writers, we meant the next Pat Conroy, not the next Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> well, you gotta that ought to be just front and center on your website. I mean, that's that's the kind of review that'll sell books. I, and I looked. I, I, she was trying to insult me, and I was like, she just identified my target brand <laughs> and my audience for free. Exactly. And and I wrote her back and told her they were on the air for nine years and 143 episodes. And where I come from, a lot of people know a heck of a lot more about Bull Hog, Hog and uh, and Roscoe Cole, P. Coltrane than they do some of those other books. So that's that was where the disclaimer came from, because the truth is, just like I say in the disclaimer, a person who will buy all these books and sat down and read them all is the same guy who will get a bucket of fried chicken and a six pack of beer and sit down and watch three football games all day long and never move and have no remorse or regret about doing that. That's funny. All right. Before we have a reading on the show here, um, just before your prologue in the book, you have a map of uh, Tall City, Georgia, which is where you set this particular book, Sweet Tater Tango. Uh, you, you show us uh, Elroy Mackey Field, which is the little minor league field where this takes place, the the Tully City Motor Lodge, the Dirty Hog, Sugar's Junkyard, Jumbo Yancey Potato Farm, Henry's Park and Poor, and of course, a great name for a strip club, Woody's Strip Joint. So my question is, do these names just come to you? Uh, or, I mean, when when you create this little setting you know of course they're they're outside chicken bone now they're going to another little area of georgia and you're creating yep. this minor league area how, how does that come to you cliff is it uh on a walk is it uh, while you're th at the computer how does that work i usually just sit down i don't really i outline my books but i don't really go deep into thinking about uh things huh like i said i come from a world of journalism where you have a notepad and you're stuck over in the corner of a dugout trying to scribble out a story on deadline so i'll just sit down with a notepad scribble out things and then something will pop in to the brain and and sometimes it's a memory like a, a you know I, like i said i've been around a lot of minor league ballparks and players and baseball is famous for nicknames and so something pops in your head and then you say, well, I can't steal that, but I can make a modification to it. So that's where most of them come from, just scribbling on a notepad. 
All right, that's great. Well, uh, just to identify a few characters before you have your reading here, we've got Catfish Wilson. He's a football man. We've got Jake Elium. He's a baseball man. He's now a private investigator. And you've got the Southern Knights Baseball League uh, that needs investors. So Catfish switches sports to become part of the owner of the Tully City Taterheads. Now, before, and then, of course, Jake Elium, he signs on as manager for a fat paycheck because he used to be in baseball and he figures this is a good way to make some money. I just want to know, though, before you do your reading, um, how many little minor league ballparks have you been in your, in, in, you know, over the course of your time? And because this feels like uh, you've been there, you've seen it, you, you know. I, I, I couldn't count the number of them, but but I've probably been in, you know, over fifty to seventy five different minor league ballparks uh, during the course of uh, uh, not only in the states in the Dominican Republic down in Florida during spring training coverage. And there is something about a minor league ballpark and the crazy promotions that go on that just, you know, capture my imagination. And it's always, you know, I love baseball. And I got the chance to work with some superstars when I was with the Orioles, like Cal Ripken, Eddie Murray, those guys, Hall of Famers. But the players that fascinated me were the players on the margin. The players that barely made it up, barely made it down, never got a chance. Probably the best player to come out of their town ever, but stuck in double A. And I that, that those stories and those places fascinated me. Well, you mentioned the Durham Bulls earlier, and we, we now have uh, a grandson uh, w- with his mothers that live in Durham. And so we got a little apartment up there. And I usually walk in the uptown area and walk right past the old Durham Bulls ballpark. It's still there. It it still it l- looks a little bit like it may have looked in in the day, and yet they're still keeping it alive, even though the Durham Bulls have moved to a little fancier, you know, place closer uh, to the center of town. And they're going to wear their old uh, movie uniforms, basically, the uh, mm-hmm. uniforms from the past this year to honor the past. And a quick note on that: uh, when they shot that movie at the old park, Brian Snitker manager of the Atlanta Braves who just won the World Series and a lifetime minor league guy, probably rode 100,000 miles on buses. In the movie, he was the manager of the Durham Bulls at that time in the 80s and had a glove from the 70s that he caught bullpen with. And that's what they used in the movie because they couldn't find an old glove. So the glove that Kevin Costner uses as Crash Davis is Brian Snitker's catcher's mitt now the manager of the Atlanta Braves. And just some great lines in that book. Lollygaggers, you just a bunch of <laughs> lollygaggers. And yep. uh, and you, you told him what I was going to throw, didn't you? Yep, I did. And pay attention to me next time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, don't think. You'll only hurt the ball club. Let's do this. we got a little reading now where uh, authors give voice to the written words. We're, um, I think you're going to read a little section where – after Catfish signed Jake up to coach the Taterheads. That's right. This is when Catfish calls uh, Jake and his neighbor Alex over to let him know that he's bought part ownership in the Tulla City Taterheads. And here we go. This is Jake. Can you tell me why you called Slick and had him tell me to come over and hear about all this? Catfish smiled. Because at the end of the day, this is more about you than me. How's that? Well, once I told them old boys about your baseball background and making them wood bats, they were ready, willing, and able to sign you up on the spot to coach up these college boys. 
I'm not interested in coaching a summer league team. He flipped through the pages in the bank folder, pushed some documents aside, pulled out three pages stapled together and held them up. Well, this here might be a little bit of a problem. What is that? Your contract. Officially and legally naming you as manager of the Tully City Taterheads. My contract? I never heard about this until right now. I didn't sign anything. You remember a long time ago when I had you help get you your investigator's license? You gave me power attorney so I can sign anything legally for you. I did that? It's all legal. Ask them lawyers, all five of them. Who cares what the lawyers say? I don't care if Ben Franklin signed it. This is something I need to think about. Well, think fast, because I already told him you would do it. You did what? The ink is dry. I'm not doing this. Well, you might want to read this first. He handed me the contract. Told you I'm not doing it. I don't understand this stuff. Oh, ain't nothing but legal crap. The only thing you need to understand is at the bottom of page three, right side, circled in red ink. I turned to that last page and found it. Next to Catfish's signature was my name typed up. One line below were some numbers, a three, followed by several zeros and the word weekly. I stared at the page and handed it over to Alex. Her eyes got big. She looked up at Catfish. Really? They agreed to pay Mr. I ain't going to do it here $3,000 a week and a place to stay. 3000 good and green made in America cash. He looked at me, tapped his big fingers on the folder and waited. I paused. When is opening day? He winked. Four weeks from this Saturday at home against the Vidalia Sweet Onions. <laughs> I just, I was trying to hold it in as you're, as you're reading. It's, uh, I mean, this great character uh, development here. I mean, these characters are so fun. You kind of ride along with them and they do the stupidest things and you can't help but say, don't do that. But then you, yeah. you realize, you realize who they are. And then you, and then you come up with these names like the Vidalia Sweet Onions. And that is a thing. I mean, a Vidalia Onion, if you hadn't had t- tomato pie with, with tomatoes and Vidalia and onions in them and a little mayonnaise, Good stuff. I ought to try that out. Good yeah. stuff. And yeah. real teams here in Georgia in Summer League named the Savannah Bananas and the Macon Bacon. <laughs> right. I wish so I could have stole them. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, so um, you've got fun characters. Um, this particular team that he ends up coaching, uh, the Tully City Taterheads, they've got a leadoff batter. His name is Sugar, uh, and he drives his own bandit car from Smokey and the Bandit, the cleanup hitter. There's an ex-con named Bo Diddley. He hangs out with a beer-drinking hog. And then you got, I think you already mentioned, the demolition derby duo, Polecat and Roadkill. And then there's a rogue FBI agent and a corrupt sheriff and the Tully City Peanut King. I guess he's the antagonist, right? Right. He's a bad guy. All the other guys with the weird names are the good guys. The good guys, yeah. But they can't they can't uh, think straight enough to, to make things work out for them. Um, your tagline uses baseball language. With two out in the ninth, they have one last chance to steal a win or end up on the wrong side of a suicide squeeze, um, which makes me wonder, have you ever seen a successful suicide squeeze in person? I have. I have several <laughs> times and actually did it myself before, but it's one of the greatest plays in baseball. 
Yeah, it is. It is a wonderful play. And hey, you know, it's easier to steal home than any base. I'll still say that. I'll testify to that. <laughs> home base is the easiest to steal. All right. Well, now we got that cleared up. Uh, talk about the what if for this particular story and uh, how it came to you. Um, actually, we mentioned Bull Durham before. Right. So in a sense, it's a tribute to a, a Bull Durham situation, not the movie itself, but a tribute to all the minor leaguers I've covered, all the minor leaguers I've seen. I've witnessed guys who, I had a friend who went to St. Louis, worked his way all the way to AAA, got one call up, got in the batter's deck, last game of the season, they gave him a chance, one out, one on, the guy hit into a double play, ended the season, he never got to the plate, never got in anywhere, never played again and came that close to the major leagues. Mm-hmm. So it's a tribute to guys like him that uh, just, you know, wanted to uh, make it make it in baseball, trying these summer leagues in the middle of nowhere to try to improve their games. And uh, that's that's where the idea spawned from. And then, then I got to make it silly. So that's why I got to pick up the characters, the oddball characters that helped Jake out and uh, Catfish to be involved with his buddy Jumbo. Yeah, so – um, I get the sense, uh, Cliff, that uh, you're probably not an outliner. That you probably kind of write a little bit by the seat of your pants. You kind of get going, yeah. you get these, you get these characters, and you kind of find your way into it. Did this story go the way you thought it might go, or you, did your imagination just run away with you here? Uh, a little bit of the last, the latter, the imagination running away. I knew I wanted it to be two things: minorly, you know, a, a small town baseball and a promotion nut. And I wanted that Miami Vice car to be stolen. Other than that, I didn't have a whole lot of plot. That was one sentence plot. Mm-hmm. And so things like there, if you're familiar with the character Cool Breeze in there, the mystic old ball player, um, I had to add him as I went along because I needed somebody to drop clues. So you, you get in the middle of something and you go, well, this doesn't make sense. I need somebody that knows this. So you come up with a character like that. But general premise is there, but no, I I make a general outline and then I start writing. And since I can't turn prose into poetry like <laughs> James Lee Burke and other great writers, I have to let the characters come alive and let their dialogue lead me. And uh, that's how I do it because, I, you know, I can't spend three pages describing a sunrise. It, it, it will bomb out. So I let my characters do the talking. Yeah. And just so our listeners know this, uh, you know, we're, we get down to this little town and, and uh, in the South here and Jake Elium, he's, he's sort of settling into coaching this team. He's being told by the manager that, uh, you know, the 25th position in, on his roster is going to be filled out with a, with a raffle. Uh, you know, that's how they're doing things at the minor league baseball. So he could get anybody, you know, out of the stands to be, you know, on his roster. And at one of these nights, uh, as the Miami Vice car comes in, they they let somebody win a ride in it and they take them around the infield. And then some they're going so fast, she gets thrown out. The car runs out through the right field fence, never to be seen again. And there starts your plot point for the second half of the book, right? It does. And that's 
the second half of the book is what I mean when I put in my disclaimer that this is not your usual <laughs> mystery with the murder on page one. You got to right. get about twenty chapters into this before the mystery starts. So you got to have yeah. some fun. But that is where it starts, and Jake is then told that nobody gets paid, and everybody loses everything, and Jumbo loses his farm and all his money if he doesn't go and find this car. And that's when he teams up with Sugar, Bo Dilly, his friend, and all these other weird characters. And the uh, rogue FBI agent, who's a cute young woman. And uh, they all have to go find this car or nobody gets paid. <laughs> that's great. Well, talk about Jake Elam a minute, which uh, I was going to pronounce El- Elam, but uh, it, it's Elam, I think you said. He's your protagonist. He's a former baseball player. Um, why did it take five books to find, for him to find his way to a minor league uh, field? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, it, in the first book, he was hired to, to, to you know, f- find a prospect as to whether he's murdered or accidentally killed. And then uh, the second book, we went into music a little bit. And then third book, I had to actually create a book, had to write a whole book just so Georgia could beat Alabama. They finally done it now. But, uh, and then a tribute to scouts and bird dog boogie. So I finally got around to getting him to coach in minor league, but he, his background is that he was one of those marginal players with a few cups of coffee in the major leagues and then stumbles into chicken bone by mistake, uh, after, a long playing and coaching career and inherits this equipment to make custom wood bats. And that's why he stays there. And catfish feeds him good food and feeds him cases. And so he's a reluctant PI. He'd rather be in his little warehouse and chicken bone making baseball bats, but every now and then he's broke and needs the money. So he, so he's, He's one of those characters that allows me to do two things. One, to have someone who is outside looking inside at a case. He's not a pro. He's not a cop. He's not an ex-Army Ranger or CIA guy. He has no clue how to do any of that. And secondly, it gives me the opportunity to rant and rave about baseball (laughs) and the things I like about it and don't like about it and the old days and the new days. So that was when when I sat down and created the character, I said, I want somebody uh, that's involved with baseball somehow so I can relate to him and enjoy spending time with him. And that's what I do. That's great. Is Jake Elium ever going to end back up in the major leagues in any future books? Uh, no, I, I don't have any plans. He's, I mean, he, he kind of like a lot of other characters and mysteries stays at one age. Mm-hmm. So I'd say he's about 50 ish now. Okay. But, uh, but maybe, maybe we'll have one of those, uh, old timers game where he has yeah, to, yeah. has to get back into it. And he's got a batting cage on top of his warehouse. So who knows? So you heard it here first on Charlotte Rear's podcast. You know, he, he might be back out there. Uh, so the th- the opening of this book, Jake Elium, as you said, he's trying to make uh, ends meet. He's serving a collection notice on a man dressed in a hot dog bun <laughs> who swears he paid already by check, except that he opens the envelope and sprinkles out 
what's been shredded, which was the check in front of him and says, catfish has a cash only policy. That's right? it. Yeah. I usually try to open the story with something that's totally unrelated to the story. Just a little story that sets the character and and a lot of people will say, well, that has nothing to do with the rest of the story. But that's just my way of doing it. I like to introduce the character nonsensically getting into some sort of trouble that doesn't necessarily always lead to uh, what happens in chapter one. And in this particular case, it was just illustrating that uh, Jake is Catfish's errand boy. Uh, and kind of has to do what he wants to do. And it gave me a chance at the end of that to let Catfish ran a little bit about how much he hates Georgia Tech. <laughs> okay. Well, you've already answered a few writing life questions. So I just want to ask this one, which I sometimes ask since you've written five books now. If, um, you know, if you could give your younger writing self, uh, that is your younger novel writing self, some advice, Cliff, uh, about the things you've learned, uh, since you've been doing this for five books now that might help that younger writer, what would it be? It would be very simply, don't copy. Don't try to imitate. Uh, just keep writing and throwing out stuff. If you'd write a bunch of junk, throw it out until you find your own voice. And I got some good friends now who I'll let read my books before they go out. And they say, okay, we can hear you. And they may not be good. They may not be bestsellers, but to the best I can do because it's my voice. It's like a play-by-play -play announcer finding his voice. And it becomes the same game after game. You know what Bob Costas sounds like or whoever, John Madden, you know. And it's my voice. I've dumbed it down to my level. And I've also learned one good thing. There's no secret to writing. You just sit your butt down in a chair and do it. It's work. Good advice. All right, listeners, uh, as we wrap up here, I want to let you know that we're going to be jumping over to our Patreon channel for a few minutes uh, to record an episode uh, with Cliff. It'll be one of our segments in 2022, 10 minutes of reading and writing tips uh, with our author guest. Uh, you can join there uh, at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Uh, when you do, for a few dollars a month, you get – over 120 uh, exclusive episodes, including this one we're going to do. So come check it out uh, and, and get some recommendations. Hey, Cliff, as we wrap up, what's next for you and your writing? What's You got book six in the works? I do. We're headed back to music in book six. Carolina people will like it. It's going to be involving uh, a mystery around Carolina beach music. And, and, and that would be people in the Carolinas who know that shagging is not something dirty. It's a dance. So we're headed back that way. Name of the book is Butterbean Shingling. All right. That sounds like a good one. I look forward to seeing that uh, out there in the book world. Hey, Cliff, listen, I want to thank you for uh, spending time with us here on Charlotte Readers Podcast and bringing your own uh, unique voice to the show. Thank you very much. It's a great show, a great podcast. Everybody that knows anything about uh, books uh, should tune in and listen to you because you got a great show. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, 
iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.